Mindfulness Mode 461. So the good news was that going to prison did thoroughly wake me up and I stopped compartmentalizing my life. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode. I'm Bruce, Bruce Langford, your host, and it's so great to have you with us today. And I have something for you. It's called Awaken with Focus. It's a free 12-minute meditation just for you. Be alert, be focused, be grounded and feel invigorated and fresh and dynamic and that's how you can feel after using this guided meditation so go to mindfulnessmode.com slash awaken with focus Mindful Tribe, I am very, very excited today because I have a man with me who is extremely active in teaching mindfulness in different forms. He's written an amazing book called Radical Responsibility, and he's just such a great example to the world about what a difference you can make and how much you can help people. I have Fleet Mall with me today. Fleet, are you in mindfulness mode right now? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I I try to be as much as I can, but certainly anytime I'm being interviewed or doing any kind of presentation, I work a lot with mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath and so forth. Well, I'd like to share a bit about you with our audience with Mindful Tribe Fleet. Mall is a meditation teacher, an author, trainer, and coach who provides mindfulness-based emotional intelligence training to business leaders, managers, corrections professionals and prisoners, nonprofit leaders, clinicians, community activists, and peacemakers around the world. And he has done so much in this whole area that I could go on and on and on. He's founded both Prison Mindfulness Institute and the National Prison Hospice Association. And uh, his story is quite incredible, which we'll be getting to as we get into this This. Uh, episode into this interview. So let's start here. What does mindfulness mean to you, Fleet? Well, basically, it means being present, being awake, being present, being available to ourselves, available to others. And that includes having somatic awareness, being aware of our body and what's going on with our body, uh, physically, uh, emotional awareness, what we're feeling, and, uh, and cognitive awareness, aware of what's going on in our headspace, so to speak and in the world around us. And uh, I've always liked uh, John Kabat-Zinn's definition of paying attention in a particular way in the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. That fairly well covers it. And uh, I guess the last thing I'd I'd like to say is I like also there's a kind of a three-legged stool description or definition that's been used in the literature a lot. One is that it's important what intention we bring to the practice. So it has a benevolent intention. It's not just mere attention training for any purpose. Uh, It has a benevolent intention. And then, of course, the core is attention training. And But then, very importantly, the third leg of the stool is what are the qualities we bring to that attention? So qualities such as openness, curiosity, non-judgmental, self-compassionate, and so forth. Fleet, you were in prison yourself for a 14-year sentence. Can you tell us about that as we get started in the interview? Yeah, I'll try to just cover it quickly. I had, interestingly, I had been practicing mindfulness for 
10 years really training with un, under a profound teacher for 10 years and had been dabbling in it five years before that. So that really begs the question of how did I end up in prison? Suffice it to say, I, I was pretty thick-headed and, and uh, also was compartmentalizing my life. And I was one of those people that came up through the 60s with a dual major. And one, I was always a spiritual seeker and interested in the mind and training in psychology and interested in mindfulness and captured by the early teachings that I ran to in Zen with, with Watts and E.T. Suzuki and others. So very early interest in that in the 60s. And then I also got caught up in the whole counterculture, uh, drug, sex, and rock and roll, and radical politics. And before I could untangle all that, I earned my way into a 14-year a uh, federal prison sentence for drug trafficking. And I, I don't mean to make light of that at all, because uh, what, one of the things that really turned my life around was when I got locked up, the, the biggest realization was what I'd done to my son, who was nine years old at the time, and now was going to grow up without a dad let alone what I'd done to my own life, just completely torched my own life, and the impact on my family, my spiritual community, my friends, uh, letting my teacher down, all of that. And then I immediately got involved in 12-step work, uh, dealing with my own substance abuse issues. And after listening to the story of one, the male prison, but listening to one man after another talk about their life and their family's life unraveling around drugs, and in particular cocaine use, which is what I was involved in, you know, any artifice of self-justification I had fell apart. And I really had to face that I've been involved in very harmful activities. So the good news was that going to prison did thoroughly wake me up and I stopped compartmentalizing my life. I realized that one of the things I had been giving very short shrift to, obviously, was the ethical foundations of the Buddhist path I was on. I'd been very focused on the mind and awareness and meditative experiences. So I, I made a commitment to really ground my life there in the precepts and the basic, you know, non-harming, non-killing, non-stealing, non-lying, and so forth. I'd also always been more, even though I'd practiced a lot over the 15 years before I went to prison, done a lot of retreats, intensive retreats, solitary retreats, you know, logged thousands of hours. But I'd never really established a solid daily practice on my own. You know, I'd go off, I'd be in a retreat for a week, a weekend, three months, two months, a month. But on my own, because of my lifestyle. So when I went to prison, I knew that was critical. I had to establish and I was practicing a couple hours a day and practicing like my hair was on fire. So that 14 years in prison was kind of like, even though prison is nothing like a monastery, other than that you have three cots and a hot, you all know, wear the same clothes. Other than that, the, the parallels end there. But nonetheless, for me, it was my monastery time and a time of deep training and deep transformation for 14 years, which I focused on on, you know, training myself and developing myself, serving. I, my day job was teaching school. I did that for 14 years, nine to four every day, Monday through Friday, and very involved in the 12-step work, leading a meditation group in the prison chapel. And because I did my time at a maximum security federal prison hospital, helped start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere at the heights of the AIDS epidemic. So that was a big part of my life. So it was really you know, continuing to study and train myself, develop myself, serve as a school teacher, serve leading meditation groups and 12-step groups and doing the hospice work. So kind of this very disciplined monastic lifestyle that was also very focused on service. You start your book with, there's nothing wrong with you. Why do you think so many of us feel as if there is something wrong with us and that we're constantly working to fix it? 
Well, I believe it's the human condition to begin with, and then it's exacerbated by our culture, which, of course, is a result of the human condition. <laughs> so yeah. we're all born in very fragile circumstances, completely dependent on our, our parents, the mother, surrogate parents. And, uh, you know, with the first four or five months, we're really still in a unitary state with the mother or surrogate parent. And at some point, we have to start individuating, and we can't go back. And, uh, you know, if we don't start gathering some reference points into a self-structure, the alternative to that is this black hole of emptiness, annihilation, complete groundlessness. And we obviously can't survive that or, or navigate that at that point in our life. So we start developing a self-structure, and we develop it. Uh, really to ward off that groundlessness that is the nature of reality is it is very impermanent, fluid, and groundless. So we do it to ward that off. And depending on how stable or loving our upbringing is uh, or not, you know, so we either develop a fairly stable functional self or we develop a self that's got some gaps and is not so stable or causes us quite a bit of trouble as an adult. But regardless of how high-functioning we may be or how stable of a self-structure we've developed, it's still fear-based. And we've never dealt with that underlying level. And, and our intelligence knows this, right? And so there's a, there's a fundamental insecurity and anxiety that kind of pervades our life. And like Thoreau said, the great mass of human beings are living lives of quiet desperation, right? We're waiting, waiting for that other shoe to drop. So that's just kind of where we start. And then, of course, the message we start getting when we go to school and, you know, we live in a a punishment, reward-oriented, I would say, shame and blame-based culture. Even in our childhood, even the most benevolent parents, the basic message is conform to some set of societal norms we buy into or love will be withdrawn, which is a shaming experience. So we're all dealing with that. And then, of course, in our modern consumerist culture, we have this whole really consumer-based society where the fundamental message that you know we're bombarded with is that you're not okay. And if you buy this product, you might be okay. You know, you might be okay, at least until the next one comes out, right? I mean, that's our whole society is structured around that message of you're not okay. You know, none of us come to his childhood unscathed, and we all arrive in adolescence or early adulthood with at least a mild case, if not a severe case, of insecurity. Yeah, that's true. Now, you've recently been presenting your live event your live event that goes along with really your book, Radical Responsibility. Can you tell us some highlight moments of your event that you just finished? Yes. Well, it was a great group in this particular one. We had 35 people down in Atlanta. And, you know, Friday night, I kind of give the context. I define radical responsibility as voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life, internally within ourselves and in the world around us. And when you really reflect on that, it's a pretty radical notion. And that that has absolutely nothing to do with self-blame. We're stepping out of the blame and shame paradigm altogether. So it's not, obviously it's not blaming others, but it's not blaming ourselves, not even one iota, and it's certainly not blaming victims. So I, I introduced the context and we go through that a bit on Friday night. And then the first morning, Saturday morning, we spend the whole morning doing mindfulness-based self-regulation exercises, basic mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breathing exercises and training. But we go really deep into the body with it. I really help people activate what's called interoceptive awareness, the body's capacity to feel from the inside out and really get people grounded in their body and help them learn self-regulation techniques to regulate their body and mind, the physiology, the emotional body, the cognitive body into an optimal state. 
And we talk a lot about the zone of resilience or the window of tolerance and, and the things that trigger us out of that and developing our capacity to regulate ourselves into that sweet spot where we're most resilient and our best self, really. And then we do that in pairs and, and, and we do it in such a way of people learning to create that kind of resonance with each other and then really beginning to discover their own innate wholeness, innate worthiness. And I actually take them through an exercise as well to kind of look at that and, and see where, you know, where they're all the surface conditioning that doesn't believe we're okay, right? And all, this, all the surface conditioning of unworthiness, but through mindfulness practice, dropping down to that lower level of our being where our okayness is unmistakable. And then doing that in a pair exercise, people actually see it in each other's eyes. They're giving each other the transmission of okayness. And they're blown away over what a deeply resonant connection they can form with a human being they don't even know over, over a period of minutes and hours that first morning. So that really sets the ground for having that sense of, or at least beginning to cultivate an openness to and, and a greater confidence in our own innate worthiness and innate goodness. And, and then developing greater resilience and knowing how to navigate ourselves into resilience. And then from that place, being able to come back and look at our lives and consider this idea of radical responsibility or radical ownership actually as a doorway to freedom and radical self-empowerment. And when you think back to all the live events you've done, what was the most memorable one that pops into your mind? You know, they're all really memorable to me because I get to see the lights come on for people. You know, right. you just see things. And a big part of my model is Stephen Cartman's drama triangle. I have a relationship with him and, and permission to use his model in my model. And, and people find that once they see the, how that, that, that psychology of how we triangulate around the victim, persecutor, rescuer, drama triangle, that people, once they see it, they realize we can actually liberate ourselves from this. We can avoid a lot of the drama in our lives. So just throughout the weekend, there's all kinds of lights coming on. People just, oh my goodness, I don't have to continue living that way. There are other possibilities. So that's a big piece. But, but one that stands out for me just recently is I deliver similar. So the Radical Responsibility Trainings is through my for-profit business, Windhorse Seminars and Consulting and Windhorse Seminars Online. And, uh, but I deliver very similar work through the nonprofit that I founded and I'm still very engaged with. Uh, which goes under the principal name, Prison Mindfulness Institute. But we have divisions, Engage Mindfulness Institute, Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety. And we're basically bringing this work to prisoners and to all the professionals in the criminal justice and public safety system. And we're also, through the Engage Mindfulness Institute, we're training other people to do the same work. We're, we're training mindfulness teachers and facilitators in trauma-informed approaches to delivering the practice. So long intro to the fact that about two weeks ago, I was down on the border of California and Mexico doing a training for the U.S. Border Patrol. And they have a thousand agents in that sector, 77 miles of the border with Mexico. And they have about 40 of these agents who have regular posts and jobs of all kinds, but they're also part of what they call the peer support team. So they're there to support other agents when there's been an incident of some kind or they're struggling or things are going on. And so we were doing this training for them. And we, we did the same training twice so that we had a group of about 20 each day. And so they really, it's very similar. They get trained in mindfulness. They get trained in breath, uh, using the breath for self-regulation, how to, how to, how to at will down-regulate, up-regulate, place ourselves in the most optimal physiological, emotional, and mental state to respond to whatever we need to respond to, whether we're in a crisis or we're 
we want to go go to sleep at night or be at home with our family or just be in a state of readiness at work. So empowering ourselves to be able to regulate that would people just find amazing. The drama triangle, they love that because their pure culture has a lot of drama in it because when you have professional organizations where the staff are all running around in hypervigilance in their reptilian brain all day, they create a lot of drama together. So seeing the possibility of, of reducing that. But towards the end, I often don't have time in a one-day training to get very far into the core of the radical responsibility model and the distinction between living in the drama zone versus the empowerment zone. But I was able to spend a fair amount of time on it there, and I couldn't lead them to the, because in, in my full trainings, I do it completely experientially. I'm leading people through processes where they're getting it. I'm not like, it's not didactic, it's experiential. So I had to just kind of walk them through describing those processes, how I do them, and then describing the model and trying to, you know, a little bit back and forth with them. So a very quick down and dirty way of doing it. But their eyes were just wide open. I was really amazed because sometimes the law enforcement groups, I mean, I work with correctional officers, probation and parole officers, community police. This is kind of similar to police. They're tougher than correct. I mean, they're a tough audience. I get up in front of a group of law enforcement who are there for mandatory training. And it's like, you know, what do you got? You know, Yeah. but you know, this was the last hour of the day and they were just soaking it in. They were just soaking it in because I think what they saw was because, you know, everywhere you go in life, people have this victim narrative, whether they feel victimized by their management, they feel victimized by the way the media treats them. They feel victimized by the, you know, we all have our victim narratives about how we feel we're being unfairly treated and we're not appreciated, you know, so, you know, they have that huge thing and, and they and they do, they feel oppressed in the job they're in, they feel powerless. And suddenly they were seeing that actually they could empower themselves to have self-agency and live from a place of self-leadership in their life, regardless of the circumstance. And and they were they were very, very interested. And that was very gratifying for me. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I know, Fleet, that you can be found on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Under your name, Fleet Mall, F-L-E-E-T-M-A-U-L-L. On Instagram, Radical underscore Responsibility is where you're found. And your book, Radical Responsibility, I have it right here. And it is such a terrific book because it goes deep into your your inner psyche, your radical responsibility. I think it's great that you called it this. I want to ask you about your own personal morning routine, about your meditation. Mm -hmm. What does meditation look like in your life? Yeah, absolutely. So I live here in uh, Western Massachusetts with my partner, Sophie. We get up in the morning and, you know, we both take a shower. I do a little bit of exercise and then we go into our meditation room and we have a beautiful room set up for our meditation practice. And we usually practice for an hour to an hour and a half, depending on what practice we're doing. And then we go have breakfast. So we do that together every morning. Because of the work I do, I'm often then practicing or leading practices at other parts during the day. She and I, Sophie and I both do extensive retreats every year. I led, I participated as a participant in a 10-day retreat back in May. I led a 12-day uh, retreat in uh, July, just, just this past July. Uh, I'll be leading a five-day session, Zen-style session. Uh, I teach both in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, which is really the roots are in Tibetan Buddhism, and I also am a teacher in the Zen tradition. So I'll be leading a, a five-day session starting tomorrow, and I led a 10-day one back in February. So I'm, I'm leading meditation retreats 
you know, probably three months out of the year, uh, all put together and then leading all kinds of mindfulness stuff the rest of the year. But my personal practice is every morning uh, practicing together and doing personal retreats myself. Every uh, between Christmas and New Year's, Sophie and I do an in-house retreat here where we just shut everything off. We do that practice. And my practices are a mix of, you know, basic mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath meditation, shamatha vipassana from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, as it would be called there, zazen from Zen tradition, very similar. But being a practitioner, advanced practitioner in the Tibetan tradition, I do a lot of inner yoga practices, kiddie yoga practices, so a lot of visualization and mantra, but it's all grounded in mindfulness. It's all, no matter what you're doing, you're training the mind, whether you're using visualization or mantra or posture or doing various inner yogic things. It's all grounded and basic. Uh, you always do basic mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath practice before you start. You always do that at the end. And even whatever practice you may be doing in the midst of it, it's all basically mind training because it all requires you to attend to something, right? And when your mind sure. wanders, you bring it back. So it's all mindfulness training, but there are a lot of elaborate practices and inner yogic techniques in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Well, I love in the book how you deal head on with shame and you say it's what we feel in reaction to rejection or the withdrawal of love. Let's talk about shame a little bit. Mm -hmm. How do you help people with shame that is so deeply rooted? Yeah. So I think the important thing is to understand that it's part of the human condition. And, uh, you know, I, I've actually been shifting my view around it. Even just recently, I'm beginning to feel and understand that getting some inoculation of shame that we all get in childhood, that, that first time we realize our mother or our parents, surrogate parents, love isn't completely unconditional. And that inevitably happens. You know, initially our mother or surrogate parents, you know, whole, you know, they're flooded with oxytocin, the bloodstream, the cerebrospinal fluid, we're the center of the universe. We get nothing but unconditional and as that starts to wear off, inevitably we have the experience where mom's looking the other way, busy, maybe having a bad day or irritated or looks back at us and is irritated with us. And that changes everything. Suddenly, love is conditional, right? And that's a huge hit. So we all get that. And, and I think that actually triggers the beginning of our human evolution in a certain way. In some ways, it's the evolution of our neurotic <laughs> self. But that sets the stage for the spiritual work of transforming that, right? So I think all that's inevitable. But unfortunately, many of us get way too much shame. We get that message way too deeply and way too often. And for me, the, the best counter to that is experientially connecting with our own innate worthiness and innate goodness through contemplative means, through mindfulness practices, where we can drop below all the surface conditioning, the waves of the mind and emotions and, all, and how that's driven by all the conditioning, which is actually in our neurobiology drop below all that into a deeper level of our being where our wholeness and our worthiness is just unmistakable. And it's really not tied to a sense of self at that point anywhere. We're just in this beingness that is profoundly okay and profoundly good. And once we get an anchor down there and, you know, have some confidence in our access to that, that changes everything else. You know, it's like the, the ideas of, you know, getting to the mountaintop, you know, and seeing the greater perspective, and then you, you got to come back down, but everything's changed. Or as, they, as Christ said in the New Testament, being in the world, but not of the world, because we've had that larger perspective, or we've dropped into the depth of our being, and we begin to have some confidence, at least in the background, despite our, you know, we, we're still going to struggle, obviously, 
But in the background, we have this growing sense that I am fundamentally okay. And actually, I would suggest that no matter how strongly we receive these messages of not okayness and unworthiness, somewhere in the back of our mind or our brain or somewhere back in our neurobiology, there's some part of us that has always known that's not true and has always known it's not a, that it's a lie. But we don't have confidence in that. So meditation practices, your basic mindfulness and of body mindfulness of breathing can take us deep into our being where we can experience that directly. But I also think it's very important to do the very self-compassion practices, you know, the, the loving kindness practices and other forms of self-compassion practices. Or we just need to bathe ourselves in, in what in the Buddhist tradition is called Maitri or Metta, which means unconditional friendliness, uh, love and kindness for our own being to begin with. And really just bathing ourselves in that. So I think those kind of practices are very important to include in our daily regimen, both a basic mindfulness practice as well as some kind of mindful compassion practice. And, uh, you know, those combined, I think, are what gradually strengthen our sense of innate worthiness and lessen the impact of the shame we've received. And it also increases our resilience because we're all going to still encounter shame in the world because our society is full of it. So the more resilient we are, the more we're able to not have that penetrate, which was key to my 14 years in prison, because in prison, I mean, just on the average day, you're going to experience 10 to 20 very demeaning interactions with guards or your fellow prisoners that are an assault on your own personhood and worthiness. I mean, severely, much so than, you know, we would, most of us experience in the community on an average day, you know, often other people in the community because of poverty or racism and gender do experience those things. But in prison, it's just really off the charts. And so to survive and, and, and not just get armored up in anger and bitterness and a victim narrative, but to survive, to live in that environment with an open heart requires a lot of resilience. And I'm really grateful for the contemplative practices that I've been given that allowed me to live in prison with an open heart in a resilient way in the face of all that uh, because that was really then the platform for really profound transformation. And you really talked about that quite a bit in your book. It was very enlightening. I want to ask you about bullying, since that's an area that I've worked in extensively. Do you have a story that you can share with us where maybe you were bullied or you acted as a bully and maybe mindfulness would have made a difference? I was certainly bullied a bit in grade school. My name is Fleet. It's an unusual name. It's a family name. It was my grandfather's middle name. And so when you're, you know, that age, if you have anything different about you, you got to put up your dukes or you're going to get, you know, so, so I, I dealt with some of that, not severely. So I, I was relatively socially adept and good at sports and things. So I, I survived, but I, uh, but, but, you know, I did get beat up a few times and deal with some bullying. And, um, you know, then in, in prison, I saw a lot of bullying. Yes, I'm sure and you I, did. And I actually stepped in, which is a very dangerous thing to do, to prevent some people from being bullied, which you're in that inviting the aggression towards you. First of all, I'll say in prison, because of mindfulness, I avoided 99% of the what I might have stumbled into. I mean, there's, there's some kind of beef and violence just waiting around every corner every minute because I lived on a unit designed for 50 men. There were 175 to 190 wow. men on it no air conditioning, hot summer in Southern Missouri. I mean, there's just fights and problems all the time. And so, you know, I had probably a half dozen serious encounters over 14 years that could have gone really badly. Fortunately, I got through them without having to hurt anyone seriously or being hurt seriously myself. But that's pretty amazing for 14 years because you can be in 
you could be in six violent encounters every day. And the, rate, the way that I avoided those was two ways. One was just being mindful and awake. So I saw stuff coming. I just learned to walk the other way or, you know, where, how to not be in the wrong place at the right time, so to speak. Um, and also I learned how to carry myself. Um, uh, if you carry yourself afraid, weak, or passive, you're going to attract predators. If you carry yourself belligerently, you're going to attract uh, challengers, right? So I found that middle road. And also I led a very disciplined, purposeful life. So I wasn't hanging out. I wasn't distracted. I was like either, you know, I was working out on my health. I was meditating. I was studying. I was doing my job. I was out serving, doing things. So I, I led a very mindful, purposeful life. And that also avoided the vast majority of it. Um, so, you know, I think, um, uh, I think mindfulness can actually help someone. Uh, I actually think mindfulness could help children who are being exposed to bullying it could help them deal with it and and avoid a lot of it probably and also for for if those of us i mean i i there have been times in my life especially as a teenager or maybe i got a little aggressive i don't know if i were, would consider myself a bully but you know it was certainly through a lack of mindfulness back then and and through mindfulness i've developed uh, like most mindfulness practitioners much more awareness of my impact on others and a deep sense of remorse and regret around where that impact has been negative. So, you know, that continually, uh, it just creates boundaries, you know, it just creates, you know, I'm just, there's no way I'm going to get involved in bullying somebody today or, get, or getting that aggressive. I mean, I, I can get upset or feel myself getting irritated or my willfulness of sort of wanting my way. But before that goes, you know, to the point of really impacting somebody else, I just have natural checks and balances that are going to come up in some ways, really driven by the regret that I have o over the harmful uh, things I engaged in in the past, especially involved, being involved with drug trafficking. Right. As we move forward in the interview, Fleet, I want to ask you uh, five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The okay. first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Well, that would have to be my primary teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan master who founded Naropa University and founded the Vajradatu Shambhala community, yes. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's really allowed me to open more to my emotional life. You know, as men, we're kind of trained not to feel very much or to be somewhat yeah. clueless about our emotional life. So it's, it's opened me much more. I feel I'm much more emotionally available and just much more aware of my own emotional life, my own emotional body and able to self-regulate it as well. So able to be with it without repressing it and not getting carried away by it. So I, I feel that's been critical to, and my ability today as a teacher and a trainer has a lot to do with actually being there, really being a, not just physically and mentally present, but being emotionally present. So you've talked a little bit about breathing, but can you sum it up? How has breathing been a part of your mindfulness practice? Yes, well, the breath is very tied into our physiology, right? So, um, you know, we have uh, the two branches of the autonomic nervous system, which operate most of the complex systems in this most complex organism in the known universe. And it has these two branches that either upregulate, which is the stress response, or downregulate, which is the relaxation response. And they're connected with the in-breath and the out-breath. So we breathe in, upregulate a little bit, a little bit of heart acceleration, breathe out, downregulate, heartbeat slows down a little bit, which is why you have what's called heart rate variability in a normal stress response. So when we need to, 
engaging the breath consciously using something like straw breathing, which people can Google straw breathing and find out about it, something I teach in my trainings. Very simple, we breathe in through the nose and out through first lips, as if you're blowing through a straw. And you you have the out-breath be twice as long as the in-breath. So you might count in, two, three, four, out, to an eight count, like in, three, out, six, and four, out, eight, like that. And that directly, if you're especially if you're breathing diaphragmatically with the belly, that directly engages the relaxation response and can bring us down when we're getting overly triggered, right? And uh, I also say when I was young, I realized I'd become a chest breather, which is a stress response. You know, I'm breathing with the chest. You don't get enough oxygen. It's not healthy for us. And, and so I trained myself to become a default belly breather, and that was over 30 years ago. So I, I, I naturally breathe diaphragmatically with the belly, which means I'm getting sufficient oxygen. And allows me to stay more regulated to begin with. And then I would also say just simple breath awareness. Like I would say that any moment in which we are consciously aware of even one breath is a good moment. That's a mindful moment. It's it's adding to our reservoir of resiliency. So just simple breath awareness, just being aware of the breath going in, aware of the breath going out, whether it's in formal mindfulness practice or just in daily life. Anytime we can flash on the breath, feel the body you know, feel the body, feel the breath uh, is a good moment. And the more moments we have like that during the day, we're going to be more optimally self-regulated and we're going to be more resilient. Yeah, for sure. I highly recommend your book, Fleet Radical Responsibility. But what book would you recommend other than your own book, which is related to mindfulness? Actually, there's a great new book out by my original teacher, Chogam Trungpa, who has lots of books people could check out. And he died in 1987, but his talks and writings are still being published in the books. And so there was one put out recently, I believe it's called Mindfulness in Action, Mindfulness in Action, which is really about bringing mindfulness into daily life. Of course, I would recommend any of John Kabat-Zinn's books and Pema Chodron's books. And there's one in particular for new mindfulness practitioners. I have to hope I'm getting the name right. I didn't have it at my fingertips, but it's I think it's it's called something like real-world mindfulness, uh, uh, something like a handbook for beginners. Uh, maybe you could find it and share it with your uh, audience. But I, I did one chapter, and it was edited. And uh, it's a great primer, it's a, for, especially for new practitioners. It's, just, it's done in very simple, straightforward language. And it's from a, you know, there's like a dozen different mindfulness teachers presenting different aspects of it. So it's real-world mindfulness something, something. Is it by Brenda Salgado? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Real world mindfulness for beginners navigate daily life one practice at a time. Yeah. That's a great place to start, especially for new new folks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. And one last quick question, and that is, are there any apps that either you use or some of your clients do that can help with mindfulness? Well, a lot of uh, a lot of people I know use Insight Timer, and we've used it in some of our programs. I know that Headspace is very popular, and the great animations, uh, Breathe to Relax, is another good one. There are so many of them out there today. Uh, those are three that I know are pretty good. Insight Timer, uh, you know, it's kind of like a social network if you're practicing, and it allows you to record your practices. There's a whole huge encyclopedic archive of guided practices available through that app. Some of them are great. Some of them are, you know, not so great. You have to find your way. Um, but those, those are, uh, those are three that I could recommend. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And we can find you at fleetmall.com, F-L-E-E-T-M-A-U-L-L. And of course, on social media at Fleet Mall. So uh, Instagram, radical underscore responsibility. Thank you so much for being with us today, Fleet. Well, you're very welcome, Bruce. And if people want to check out the book directly, it's just radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And they can find all about the book there or order it through their favorite bookseller. And I would just like to mention, if people are interested in the prison work, it's prismindfulness.org. Okay, thanks for adding that. And we'll add those to our show notes as well. So thanks again for being on the show, Fleet. And all the best with the wonderful work that you're doing for the world. Well, it's been a pleasure, Bruce. And it's so wonderful that mindfulness has entered the mainstream in the way that it has now. And that there's podcasts like yours out there spreading the word because I think it's become a no-brainer to introduce human beings. Unfortunately, it's happening at an earlier and earlier level to basic mind training or mindfulness training and some kind of social-emotional learning or emotional intelligence so that we actually know how to navigate all this and uh, instead of just being dragged around by our conditioning. So very grateful for your work. Thank you so much. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, awaken with focus, a 12-minute meditation just for you, recorded by me. You can be alert, focused after waking. That's what it's all about. Feel invigorated, fresh and dynamic. Let your vibrancy feed those around you. Download this meditation to help you get going in the morning at mindfulnessmode.com slash awaken with focus. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.